Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. This is a Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN. Let's head to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Evan Drellich does a great job covering baseball for The Athletic, and he's with us now in St. Louis on 101 ESPN. Evan, I believe this is the first time that uh, I have spoken to you. Thank you very much for taking some time with us on 101 ESPN. How are you doing today? Doing good. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Michelle. Evan, I want to get a confidence check from you. It seems like every day, Randy and I and all of our listeners are reading reports about baseball. We want to know when baseball is going to be coming back. And it seems like a lot of people in the know are saying, hey, I don't even know because I'm getting such conflicting reports every day. One person, they'll text, say, 100% we're coming back. The next person will will say, hey, I don't think this is going to happen. So where are you? Do you think that we are going to see baseball in the 2020 season? I do, and I might be a little naive but I, I can't see the economics ultimately stopping the sport. To me, the question is going to end up being, and I've said this in different places, whether or not they can finish a season. It's, it's relatively easy to see them being able to get a day of baseball in or a few days of baseball in. The pandemic is the part that is outside of everybody's control that's unpredictable. I think they can find a way to get over the money. And the other thread that they are negotiating on right now, which is their own health protocols. There's still a ways to go in both of those buckets, so to speak. But I do think there is some sort of quote-unquote middle ground they can reach. And it seems like that's where they have to go, Evan, because you have players like Trout saying, hey, I want to be tested every day and I don't want to play unless it's completely safe. And then you have other players saying, you aren't going to allow us to spit. So it does seem like that they they have to get to a a middle ground after the initial 67-page proposal by ownership about uh, safety and health. So yesterday, the union sent back its response, or at least its first response, to the health protocols. And that had notes on testing frequency, what happens with positive tests, what happens with in-stadium medical personnel, high-risk players, things like the the hydrotherapies these guys use, because there were restrictions on that in the 67th uh, page initial draft. There's going to be a back and forth on it. Ultimately, their incentives are all lined up. I mean, when it comes to the health stuff, you're talking about finding things that are practical for these guys to do, or at least learnable, because this is all ingrained behavior. And if you're asking players to do things that maybe might not be medically necessary, is that a burden you want to take on when there are going to be so many things that are medically necessary at this point? And look, Baseball players, like anybody else, want their relative freedom. The original proposal included kind of restrictions on moving around at the hotel. There's kind of almost only so much you can ask of people to a degree. Evan, are you surprised in a way that this is playing out in the public the way it is in the public eye, especially with the state of the world, the state of everything right now? It doesn't seem like it works in baseball's favor from a PR standpoint to have this contentious disagreement between millionaires and billionaires over money playing out in the public. It just seems like they maybe didn't really consider how this would look in the court of public opinion. 
you know, if you were really cynical, you, you could say that having this play out in the court of public opinion without games is actually helping people pay attention, but I, I wouldn't even go that far. <laughs> um, any labor fight is bad PR. It, it's, it's the same thing that was true in 1994 and in all the work stoppages before that. This is obviously different, but in a way it, it's slightly more contentious because it is different, where you have players who, who might feel more motivated to fight on the economics because of the health concerns, because they're fearful for their family uh, and, and you know, worried about... It has to be worth it to them relative to their own world. Uh, it's always going to be millionaires and billionaires. It's, it's never going to be something that is kind of built for the public. It, it is built for those parties to better themselves. That's what this dispute is all about. Last November in The Athletic, it was Evan Drellich and Ken Rosenthal that broke the story about the Astros sign-stealing scandal. And a lot of things happened with, obviously, that team and with the Boston Red Sox. Evan, how much have you thought about how this pandemic and a shortened season affect the fallout of what the Astros and the Red Sox did? And what do you, how do you think it changes the fallout of what they did? Well, intuitively, it's just not going to be quite as uh, at the forefront of people's minds when, when with fans. And you might not have fans in the park. It, it kind of the center of the economics argument this year is the owners are saying, without fans, our, our money looks drastically different, which, which to a degree is true, and the union is contesting how true that is. So when the moment was to come that, that these guys were going to be booed as, as expected, at every road city, it's just not going to feel that way. Um, fighting and, and, and you know, throwing at guys, that was already supposed to be nipped in the bud. Uh, the commissioner made pretty clear that wouldn't be tolerated. That doesn't mean it was never going to happen. But amidst the pandemic, one of the things that you have to be even more restrictive of is a bunch of sweaty guys jumping all over each other in a fight. Even more now, besides regular safety, you have to be concerned about having fights. So, I don't think the fans are going to forget. I don't think uh, people are going to forget, but you're not going to have that opening day response that people were expecting. Evan, do you think that players, especially pitchers, still might want to go out there and get their shot in at somebody? Because, yes, it's, there's been a pandemic since the last time baseball was, was going on, and a lot of things have been put into perspective, but I think the way the Astros reacted to the cheating scandal, how defiant they were, and how overconfident they were really did rub a lot of people the wrong way, and I, I don't wonder if there are some pitchers out there saying, hey, you took something from me, and I'm going to give it back to you even in the midst of all of this that's going on. I don't doubt that somebody's going to have that attitude at some point. I, I would imagine it's lessened now, just a little bit by the, by the virtue of time and uh, maybe every other factor we just talked about here. But, yeah, when you have hundreds of, of, of pitchers across the major leagues and, and you know ultimately facing the Astros in a given year, I would just play the numbers game and bet that somebody will, will step out of bounds while making clear that – even the pandemic aside, the beanball stuff is truly dangerous. And, and it does seem to be a growing recognition inside the game that ML, from MLB on down, the tolerance for that kind of behavior and policing does seem to be changing because it, it is a policing method that's silly on one level, which is 
it's the same punishment for every crime, and it, it just doesn't fit. It's, it's not right. I mean, you, you are potentially endangering people. But, yeah, I think somebody will be stupid enough to try. <laughs> Evan Drellich, the Athletic has really become a go-to for everybody, those of us in the industry and, and fans, as far as information is concerned for all sports. And we love the work that you're doing on the baseball side. Thanks so much for taking some time with us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Have a good weekend. That's Evan Drellich of The Athletic on 101 ESPN. Next up, you're killing me, Smalls. Stick around. It's coming your way. What's totally killing Smalls right now? You're killing me, Smalls. You're killing me, Smalls, with Michelle Smallman on 101 ESPN. The other day, Golik and Wingo were doing a segment about the greatest sports conspiracies. And during the last three minutes, I've been telling Michelle my conspiracy theories about the New England Patriots. Do you like them? Yes. Can you reveal some of them to sure. our listeners? I, I can. There, there are several. Number one, uh, one time, Doug Flutie, he was the backup quarterback to Brady. He revealed that he was going to pick up his helmet as the Patriots had the ball. He accidentally picked up Brady's backup helmet and the coach to player communication is supposed to stop at the 15 second mark of the play clock and so he's put pulling this helmet over his head and he hears the offensive coordinator talking to Brady with like nine, eight, seven seconds left on the play clock. And obviously the, the Patriots always played with communication. The visiting team's communication would always go out. But that was one thing. Flutie admitted that they were cheating that way. Spygate, Eric Mangini reveals on a Sunday and it becomes a story on Monday, the Spygate situation. And Roger Goodell, rather than getting the tapes to New York and looking at them, has those tapes burned at Gillette Stadium on Wednesday. Never even saw the tapes. Clearly, it seems to me, because in a sport that is predicated on, its success is predicated on gambling, you don't want all those gamblers to find out that the Patriots have won games and won championships based on cheating. The one thing that gamblers want to know is that they watched an honest outcome, and it clearly would not have been an honest outcome in that situation. And then the other one in Spygate, the Rams play up in New England in 2001, win the game 24-17. And Lovey Smith, and hey, if the Rams didn't change their sig- signals, defensive signals, then that's troubling. However, because the Patriots were taping those signals and knew exactly what the Rams were going to do defensively, Tom Brady in those two two-minute drills, the touchdown pass to David Patton at the end of the first half, the game-winning drive with no timeouts left in the second half, he's able to Literally look over at Lovey. Uh, they're running a no huddle, and he's able to look at Lovey and see what signals he's sending in, and knows exactly what defense the Rams are running. It's it's clear. It's not even a conspiracy. It just happened. I still cannot believe that the tapes were burned. Isn't that crazy? It is insane would, to me. How can how can Roger Goodell and his staff never see those Spygate tapes? And how can all the other owners in the NFL sit by and just, you know, I'm sure privately they might have expressed some anger towards that. But I would be like, are you kidding me right now? And by the way, among those tapes, allegedly, was the tape of the the Rams walkthrough the day before Super Bowl 36 at what was supposed to be an empty Superdome. So, there you go. You're killing me, Small.
I'm not a conspiracy theory guy, so I'm just talking about facts here. We're talking facts. Well, Randy, I wonder if any of those facts are going to make their way into a new nine-episode series that ESPN is working on called The Man in the Arena, Tom Brady. This will include a look at from Brady's perspective at the six NFL titles and three Super Bowl defeats he was a part of. And uh, it's going to be released next year. That's right. ESPN is working on this series while Tom Brady is still playing in the NFL. It's going to be released next year. Your thoughts? I don't believe that we will get the candidness that we got, for example, from The Last Dance. And the 22 years of hindsight, I think, worked to the advantage of the producers of The Last Dance. But as you so eloquently mentioned, how can you do a real honest assessment of Tom Brady's career while he's still playing and importantly, before he goes into the Hall of Fame? I don't think you can. And that's why I'm not. Well, I think ESPN is they are incredible at doing these docuseries. What they do is second to none. But I just think that the way that they approach 30 for 30s is amazing because there has to be a 10-year separation from the time the event happened until they start working on it because you need the story to finish and you need time to let it breathe. And I think you get, to your point, more honesty, more transparency from the people involved when there is that that separation time. Now, this is just going to, Brady's involved in this. It's from his perspective, which is interesting. But then it's just going to be a propaganda machine. When you think about it, he still has the Hall of Fame to worry about. He still has his, his honors with the Patriots to worry about. He's still playing, so he has his relationships in Tampa Bay to worry about. He's worried about his business. He is not going to say anything scandalous or incriminating or tell any of the truths about any of the things that you mentioned. It's just going to be nine episodes about how hard he works and how he he is so strict with his diet and how he drowns out the noise. It's it's going to be great and I will definitely watch it but I do think that they should have waited to and do a, this. A reasonable question. If you're ESPN and you're in a partnership with Tom Brady and you might want to pursue him as your Monday Night Football analyst down the road, are you going to put that Doug Flutie nugget in there? No. No, you're partners. And if you're Tom Brady... And you're worried about all those things. Are you going to be honest? Of course not. No. So, I don't know. But I'll still watch, too. I'm I'm with you. But I don't think it's going to be as compelling. There's no chance that it can be. Because Jordan's six championships came through hard work and dedication. (laughs) And he didn't have to have opponents' signals and stuff like that. You're killing me, Smalls. I always thought, Randy, that since the Patriots beat the Rams in the Super Bowl, that maybe some of this hatred would have lessened for you. Because it did for me. It certainly did for me. I became hardened to it, but the the hatred hasn't left. I didn't care that they beat the Rams in the Super Bowl because they've already won five. What's one more? And the fact that they were beating the Rams was a good thing. But... If they play anybody else in the Super Bowl, I'm rooting for anybody else. That's true. And I love how when you talk to any of the members of The Greatest Show on Turf about that mm-hmm. Super Bowl, they still have that anger. They still have that resentment. That tells you, I think, a lot of what you need to know about the, that game. Marshall Falk, is the, he might not be the best, but he's the smartest football, not the best person, I'll say. But he's the smartest football person I've ever run across. And for him to say what he said about that Saturday... That holds a lot of weight with me. I hope we get an actual neutral party to do the Spygate 30 for 30. Because you know Belichick and Brady are not going to participate in it, but I hope the 30 for 30 on Spygate, if and when it happens, gets a lot of people to be honest. That would be great.
You're killing me, Small. Okay, well, speaking of The Last Dance, Randy, one of the factors of The Last Dance that has everyone talking, everyone debating, is Michael Jordan's claim that the flu game was actually food poisoning. There had been rumblings for years. Maybe it was the brown bottle flu. Was Jordan partying? And that's why, you know, he said he allegedly had the flu before that game. He said, nope, food poisoning, pizza joint in Salt Lake. Five dudes came to the door. They were peering in. They knew it was me. They handed me the pizza. I and I alone ate the entire pizza. Mm-hmm. I got sick. I battled through food poisoning. A lot of people, including me, said the logistics don't check out here. So our friends at the Zone 1280 got the manager from the pizza joint. He was the former assistant manager at the Utah Pizza Hut. Claims he not only didn't jo- poison Jordan during the finals, but explains the reason why he wouldn't do that. Since the crap story that the guy said that there were five people, there was two of us, and, and I didn't even have that many people working at the time at the store, but there was only two of us. You had police car, if I remember correctly, being parked in there, and you had to identify yourself. We're dressed in all of our uniforms. Both of us are in uniform, and it's clear where we're coming from. So he says there was only two people there, not five, and that there were cops protecting them from getting into Michael. It makes which makes so much more sense. Yeah, it does. Now he goes on to say he made the pizza himself. He was a big Bulls fan. He named his his son after Mike Michael Jordan. And what I think is the nail in the coffin. He had money on the Bulls to win that series. If you are a gambler in any way, shape, or form, I am not. But I have watched. I've worked with Anthony Stalter a lot. I have watched mm-hmm. his emotional investment in things that he has laid money on. You are not going to poison Michael Jordan if you have money on the Bulls. Bingo! Right, and that does make a whole lot more sense than the description that was delivered during the documentary. And as Horace Grant said, not everything in the documentary is true. So uh, it's good to know that there is another story out there. And there's a lot more to talk about with that. Great stuff. Thank you as always. You got it, Randy. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. And coming up, Cardinal Hall of Famer Chris Carpenter will join us on Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. With Michelle Smallman, I'm Randy Carriker. Great to have you with us on 101 ESPN, and it's always great to talk to the Cardinal Hall of Famer, Chris Carpenter, who joins us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. Carp, how's everything going? How you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. How about you guys? Everything's good. You've handled the uh, quarantine well? So far. I'm looking forward to it uh, opening up, but obviously it's about safety first, so uh, it's it's pretty slow here in New Hampshire. The weather's starting to get nice. Everybody's kind of itching to get out, but uh, it, it's been pretty good. How about you guys? We've handled it well, better than uh, for me at least could have been expected. But yeah, we're we're kind of opening up a little bit in St. Louis too. Hey, the Cardinals are going to announce Chris tonight. There are two fan votes for the Cardinal Hall of Fame, and I, I want to go back a couple of years to when you got that phone call because obviously, uh, in, in talking to you that day and uh, other times, uh, I know it was a big deal for you what was it like when you got that phone call that you had been elected to the cardinal hall of fame yeah i mean obviously it's an honor super exciting and and you're kind of overwhelming to be honest with you because i think i've shared this before when you when you show up to the cardinals organization no matter if you've been brought up through that organization or or come from somewhere else you know my impression especially that first opening day is you, you see all these red jacket guys coming out on in the cars and, and how they're treated and, and how respected they are. And, uh, you, you dream of being a part of it. Um, and then you get the opportunity to actually be one. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty, uh, pretty unreal. 
Chris, I think a lot of people, when they look back on your career, one of the games that certainly rises to the top is that epic Game 5 2011 NLDS. You, Roy Halladay, showdown. Heading into that game, that's that's a moment that you dream of. You want the ball in the biggest of moments. You want to be that guy. How was that knowing it was your friend on the opposition? Were you saying, man, I wish it was somebody else that I was going against? Or did you think, this is exactly what I want because I want to be going against him in this moment? Yeah, I, I mean, you, you go into it, you know, there's all kinds of different thoughts and feelings about it. But ultimately, as competitors, um, when you cross the lines, you're not friends. Um, you're competing against one another. You want to compete against the best. Um, he was the best at that time. And, um, you know, you go into it knowing that it's it's about winning, not about uh, whether or not uh, you guys will remain friends after it's over. Hey, Chris, uh, did you watch the, the Last Dance documentary, the, the Jordan and the Bulls documentary? Uh, I have, except for the last two episodes, so don't okay. give it away. No, we, we <laughs> won't. Try to watch it. I thought of try you. to watch it tonight. Uh, okay. I, I thought of you when Sam Smith was telling that story. And, and it, Michael was obviously different but uh, from a personality standpoint. But Sam Smith telling that story that one of the writers had picked Cleveland in three, one of the writers had picked Cleveland in four, and one had picked Cleveland in five. And Michael comes over and says, we took care of you, we took care of you, and tonight we're going to take care of you. And, and I go back to a story that you told me when you were going into the St. Louis Sports Hall of Fame about the night before, after you guys had won game four, you were with Punto and Laird on the bus. Can you Can you relay that to our listeners here? Yeah, we were driving back from the workout, and uh, and basically I, I just had the confidence and felt that it was going to be okay and, and, and that we were going to win, and I, I shared with them that I, I, I felt like I was going to win and, and our team was going to win tomorrow. And I uh, shared with, with Nick that, because Nick at the time, his his, you know, he, his nickname was the Shredder because he was, he was the one that was starting to rip people's jerseys off and things like that, and uh, he had never... Um, done it to me, and I told him that after I after we won uh, tomorrow night, I said uh, you can uh, you can shred me on the field, and uh, and obviously we go on to to that game and, and win, and I had the game that I had, and, and ultimately it worked out to where Nick was able to shred me right there by first base uh, on the field after the game, and um, it was it was pretty pretty fun. Chris, when we watch The Last Dance, so much of Michael Jordan's competitiveness reminds us of you and Yadier Molina, Tony La Russa. So many members of the teams that you played on had that competitive fire. I want to know, when you were out there with Yadi, was there ever a time that he would call a pitch that you didn't agree with or a time with Tony when he would come to take you out of a game and you didn't want to come out? I just wonder how, when you have two really, really competitive-minded people like that, who wins in those, in those disagreements? Yeah, yeah, no, that happens all the time, and uh, it, it definitely happened with Tony and Yachty. Um, but ultimately, as competitors, like I said, um, we know that the, uh, we have the the best interest of each other in, in mind, and and sometimes it turns into arguments, and, and sometimes it turns into heated arguments. But uh, um, you move on, and you can com- continue to compete with Yachty. Yeah, I mean, there's. There's multiple times where there was pitches called that, uh, you know, he wanted or, or that I wanted. But, again, uh, the pro that he is and the preparation that he has, um, he knows exactly where I want to be and what I want to do. And I uh, was able to uh, to get to the pitches that, that I want uh, pretty quickly. In that situation, the pitchers are the ones that ultimately make the uh, the final, final call. 
unless Yadi has that uh, really strong feeling, he might call timeout and come out and talk about it. But ultimately, you know, I have the decision over that. And, Carp, that's an interesting dynamic because you were a veteran at the time. But when you're dealing with young Cardinal pitchers who are going to be caught by Yachty, obviously you want to tell them, hey, and they all know, they have to have conviction in their pitch they're going to throw, right? They can't can't throw a pitch that they don't feel good about. But at the same time, Yachty is so good that it's it's probably a fine line for a young pitcher to to determine, okay, what's best, what I'm thinking or what he's thinking? Yeah, and I, you're 100% right. Um, and, and ultimately, again, I think the younger you are, um, that's that's just a learning experience and, and trusting in the guy behind uh, home plate. Uh, we have the best of, of the best. And, and, and again, the, how prepared he is, he knows just, about, just as much about uh, the game plan and the hitters and how we want to work the hitters as, as the pitcher does. So you're in pretty good hands uh, as a young player coming up and, and working with him. Um, but you also want to challenge them to think um, and understand what they're doing and why they're doing it, not just sit there and, and shake yes the whole time. So it's, again, it's, it's a fine line between it all. Um, but uh, definitely when you have a guy like Yachty, uh, there's no question we have an advantage. Chris, I remember the first time I ever went down to Bush Stadium as a member of the media. I was getting um, kind of tutored by somebody, and I think it was the day before you pitched uh, a game, and they said, hey, rule number one, do not speak to Carp the day or the day before he pitches. Just don't even consider it. And I said, okay. They're like, he is so locked in. Do not disrupt him. I was like, all right, deal. I won't. I will avoid him at all costs. But, you know, in interviews after that, you've talked about the anxiety and the and just the way that you were so focused on the task at hand the day before can you describe to our listeners what that's like for a starting pitcher in the days before and the day of the game, how you really mentally focus and get ready for the task at hand? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, for me, it definitely was, you know, I had a lot of anxiety. So a lot of that that people saw, I think, was me dealing with the, the internal emotions that were going on inside of me. Um, and it's funny because people say that, and, and I, I look at it differently. I feel like I really didn't feel like I was any different on the day that I pitched. I guess just people wanted to stay away from me. I don't know. Maybe it was my facial expressions or what was going on. But, man, um, I didn't feel like I was that mean or rude on the days that I pitched, but I guess um, I was. But the point of it is is that, um, you know, you, you're, you're locked in. You're prepared. Every starter has their, their own routines. Um, some guys can come in and, and just do whatever they want, and you know everything's just like a normal day. And then there's other guys that that definitely have a different personality and, and, a, and a different mindset when they come to that the park that day. And uh, everybody, you know, again learns over time through experiences, through their, and, and, and hopefully becomes who they are supposed to be, uh, and learn about themselves and what makes them the best that day to, to prepare to go pitch. Um, I was just a, a quiet internal, uh, a lot of thinking, a lot of things going on in my mind on the days that I pitched, making sure that I was prepared the way I needed to be prepared. Another guy that we see that roiling intensity in is Jack Flaherty, and we know that you have taken kind of a mentor role with him. What's your relationship with Jack like? Do you see aspects of yourself and your game in him? And what do you what do you think of what you see out of Jack Flaherty? Yeah, you do. And, and uh, again, great talent, ultimate competitor. Um, but what you hope is that that Although Jack uh, and I did it in my career, I took I took aspects of Pat Hink and Woody Williams, Matt Morris, Roger Clemens, David Wells, guys that I was able to compete with uh, and, and be teammates with, um, and Mike Matheny, catchers too. You know, like 
um, you take aspects of everybody's games and, and you apply it to your to your own. And and when I started becoming successful, it was when I was I, I allowed myself to be me and not try to be somebody else. And and what you see in Jack is is a great athlete, a great talent, uh, dedicated, determination, confident, and and competitive. And what you hope is over time, um, he develops into his own person and uh, allows his talent and, and to be free to, to go out and compete how he, he's supposed to compete. And uh, I, I hope he doesn't try to be like me or try to be like Adam Wainwright or try to be like somebody else. He could take aspects from our games and the way that we prepare and think. But uh, um, I want Jack to be Jack, and uh, he's definitely growing into that. Carp, I've never asked you this before, and it, it, I ask you this because in addition to you, Flaherty also talks to Bob Gibson. What was your interaction with Bob Gibson like when you were a pitcher for the Cardinals? Yeah, um, which is an, another great resource, right? Uh, people in, in the San Luis community have compared me to, to Bob and compared Jack to Bob. And, and uh, you know, I've always said there's, there, there will never be another Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson was... Uh, probably one of the top five of all time. And, uh, but throughout my time in St. Louis, I was able to chat with him, able to, to get to know him a little bit. Um, I think if anybody that has met Bob uh, knows he's a little introverted himself and, um, he's a wonderful man with, with great knowledge. Uh, I I really enjoyed being around him and and whenever he spoke, you listened. Um, but he also was, uh, was funny at times too. So, it's uh, it's nice to be around him and, and, and listen and, and learn from him, too. All right, Carp. So a couple years ago, Randy and I were on the air together and we were talking about the Blues and their quest to win their first Stanley Cup championship in franchise history. And Randy was so convinced that the Blues were cursed. I said, OK, if the Blues ever win a Stanley Cup championship, you have to get a Blues tattoo. And he said, done. I, I'm never going to say it in my lifetime. I will commit to this. Well, we obviously know what happened, that the Blues did hoist the cup. And I remember, I think it was back in 2010, you did a, uh, a feature with Jimmy the Cat Hayes on Fox Sports Midwest about you getting your tattoo. Tuesday, and I'll never forget because everyone always talks about how tough you are. You said I, I kind of like the pain of the tattoos. Now, Randy, when he got his tattoo done, he cried. So I just want to know if that makes you think any less of him that he cried when he was getting ta- his tattoo done while you enjoyed the pain. Uh, no, again, there is, uh, you know, in that process, there's there's sometimes you enjoy it, and there's other times that I did want to cry. I just didn't let anybody know. <laughs> so I don't think any less of him. I'm just proud of him that he did it. I've got a beautiful, bigger than I thought, Blues Stanley Cup cat tattoo with a sash for 2019 on my back left shoulder. So that's the one I have. What's the tattoo that you have that's the most meaningful? Um, man, I got one on my my shoulder of uh, the kids, um, Sam and Ava, and myself that. Uh, represent our represent them and then uh, i guess probably the one on my leg too or the koi fish that's on my leg um that that we did that feature on and uh i think it's just you know the story of of determination and, and never letting uh letting up uh through through times and that of struggle when when you know all the injuries that i had um he just continued to to fight and try to get better and and try to become a better person through it all and um, unfortunately I was able to come back a few different times from a few different injuries. And, um, I think, so I think that's the one that, uh, probably means the most. 
Well, speaking of that, one of the injuries and surgeries that you came back from was when you famously had your rib removed and then went on to pitch. And I remember at the time you said you gave the rib to your daughter and she had it in a jar. So we need a rib update. Does your daughter still have the rib and is it prominently displayed somewhere in your house? Yeah, nope. Um, <laughs> after I retired uh, and we uh, all moved back to New Hampshire, it was in a, this is kind of gross, but it was in a, a a box. It found its way into a box, and by the time I unpacked the box, it had all uh, it had dumped over and spilt out, <laughs> which is a, and it was a grossly uh, smelling. So it ended up having to get uh, thrown away, uh, wrapped up in a bag, and uh, I, I made sure I took care of it properly and, and and threw it away the way it was supposed to be thrown away. I mean, you threw away a huge piece of cardinal history there. <laughs> it could be the whole thing. It was. I mean, you don't even understand how disgusting it was when I opened that box. Um, I was like, oh, my word, what is that smell? I didn't even know it was in there. And uh, I ended up coming across it, and I was like, okay, that's we got to do something with this. So we did. Well, that's a bummer. But la- last thing for you, Carp, we know that you are a hockey guy. You are a Blues fan. We know that you have had interactions for the team. Well, speaking of Randy's tattoo, what was it like for you as somebody that knows St. Louis, knows the great hockey fans, to watch the Blues go on and win their first Stanley Cup championship? It was so, I mean, it was so exciting, you know, to be able to, to be a part of that, that blues community when I lived there and played there. And, uh, you know, I became friends with some of the guys, uh, being a hockey fan, knowing the history and, and uh, in that organization and, and how passionate, you know, our fans in our city are for any sports that we have, um, to see them just continue to, to rise to the occasion throughout that that season, which you know, I mean, what a story, right? I, I can't remember was it January when they were however many points behind and um, in last place, and, and and then to be able to come back and, and win it just shows the character of, of that team. Uh, uh, it brought a lot of excitement to uh, to our community there in St. Louis, and, and you're always rooting for those guys. They're they're just super pros, and it was a lot of fun to watch them celebrate. Carp, hopefully we'll uh, all be able to get back to ballparks and you'll be able to interact with the Cardinal pitchers and we'll see you down at Bush Stadium hopefully uh, this year, if not next spring training. But we always like talking to you. Thanks so much for taking the time with us and uh, we really appreciate it. I appreciate you guys. Thanks for reaching out and uh, be safe. You too. Thank you. That is the Cardinal Hall of Famer, Chris Carpenter, with us on 101 ESPN. What a fantastic person he is and what a what a great guest he's got so many great stories and so many great insights i loved what he said about jack flaherty how you know he recognizes some of the same competitive traits in jack but the best advice that he can give him is that jack has to be jack he has to be himself and go out and throw his game and i thought what great advice because i think a lot of times great players or young players are trying to look to other people to try and maybe mold their path after somebody else but you can't do that you have to go out there and be yourself and how cool is it that a guy is pitching against a team that was the biggest favorite, I think in the last 25 years, the biggest favorite in a baseball playoff series, the Phillies over the Cardinals in 2011. And he's telling Nick Punto, hey, when we win tomorrow night, you can shred my jersey. So cool. That's awesome. Coming up next, Danny Mack and Scoops with Danny Mack is on the way, and we're going to cross it over to his program next on 101 ESPN. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs, the crossover on 101 ESPN.
Danny Mac and Scoops with Danny Mac coming up at 10 o'clock, 10 to 11 here on 101 ESPN. We just had Chris Carpenter on, and that's Michelle's all-time favorite all player. All-time favorite. Huh? All-time favorite. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh... Danny Mac, your yeah. all-time favorite player was Ozzie Smith. Yep. So tell us about the first time you interviewed him. Oh, man, it was probably in the clubhouse after a game when he was playing. And I was, you know, I, at, at that time I was trying to be realistic about my role, which was I'm a media member and I'm not a fan. You know, be it, go in there and don't be awestruck. Eh, throw that out the window. That was Ozzie. It's <laughs> yeah. pretty cool. And I always tell the story and I always embarrass Ozzie maybe to an extent, but I say... And I've done a ton of events uh, with Ozzy since that time. I've even said it on the air on games uh, to let people know. I said, you know, sometimes you meet your hero and you have this great anticipation and buildup of what that might be. And I said, Wizard, I want to tell you what. Not only have you met that, you've surpassed it for me. You've surpassed it. And that, you know, you hear so many times where a young guy meets their idol and they get... They're disappointed. They're very disappointed. And I've never been disappointed. And he handles everything I've ever seen with class. I mean, Brian Bartow of the Cardinals talks about it a lot when he was traveling. You know, so this is pre-McGuire and pre-really the the influx of just the autograph seekers. They were there, but not to the point that we see now. And he said, I, I Brian would tell me, he goes, unbelievable. He said, we'd be getting on the team bus. People are lined up. Kids are lined up to get Ozzy's autograph. He would sign all of them before he got on the bus. All of them. Now, everybody's got wards, and I'm certain that he's got some wards. I just haven't seen him. He's been unbelievable to me, and I'm just very thankful for that. And I'm the same way with Lou Brock, who was my guy growing up. How great is he? couldn't meet a nicer <laughs> guy. And like you said, you, you meet him, and they're so friendly, and they actually become friends and actually surpass any expectation personally that you had for them. One of my favorite pictures that I have, I love taking pictures of my kids, just brings back memories but down in spring training Lou Brock is there he's in shorts he's got a golf shirt on how are you young man you know he gives me one of those I said how you doing Mr. Brock and he goes Daniel how are you and I'm oh, doing great I said uh, and, he, and he didn't say anything he says who are these who are these youngsters and I said oh this is my son Luke and this is my daughter Avery and they were really young at the time probably six and four and I have a picture of Lou in the middle and he's got them both arm in arm and and he just was so gracious with that. And I said, you guys are going to remember this the rest of your life. You may not know who Lou Brock is, but when you get older, you're going to know. And certainly uh, they know because a couple weeks ago we we're going through pictures and my son said that, hey, that's dad, that's Lou Brock. And I said, yeah, remember that? And he goes, I don't, but that's Lou Brock. That is so cool. I think it's so special. We were talking about the Cardinals Hall of Fame earlier that not only do so many people in St. Louis have their favorite Cardinal, but they've had those interactions, whether it's Stan Musial or Lou Brock or Albert Pujols with their idols. And I think that's something so special about the Cardinals organization that not only do they have the caliber of player, they also have the caliber of person that understands what the organization means and what it means to the community. That's a key, Michelle. They understand and the role of the organization, um, I think as they're going through it, like, you know, Matt Carpenter mentioned that yesterday. He said, I miss being a part of the community and, and not being here and a part of what Cardinal baseball means to St. Louis. And it, and he meant it. It was heartfelt. It wasn't just a guy reading off a script mm -hmm. and trying to be A-Rod and be perfect with everything you say. 
Um, and I think when you retire, you have a greater appreciation for it because you look back on your career, you're proud of it, but then you also think of the impact that you made every single night you went out and you competed and you you tried your best. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. More times than not here in the last two decades, it's been really good. You miss it, but then you understand the importance of what it means to the uh, the community in, in general. And I thought it was notable, Michelle, that Chris Carpenter said our community. Yep, he, he wasn't saying the community. Too. It was, yeah. you know, the, the Blues winning was so big for our community. I used to get calls sometimes late at night from one Chris Carpenter and one Keith Kachuk. <laughs> and they'd be having competitions into the wee hours of the night, early morning of who could either hit or who could score a goal. And you know how Carpenter loves mm-hmm. hockey and Walt loves baseball. And those two are, Daddy Mac! You know, and they got the, the Eastern accent. Saddle a bet for us! You know, and it's, I'm like, what in the hell is going on here? And so the next day, I'd go up to Carp. I'd say, did you settle the bet? And he goes, oh, you bet we did. You know, <laughs> it, was it was awesome. It was unbelievable when Carpenter... And the Blues obviously did not expect this, but they they allowed Carp to go out and practice with them, and he's being Chris Pronger. Yeah. He's flashing guys in the ankles, and he's hitting, and they did not expect that. They didn't see that coming. You know what my favorite, I think my favorite Chris Pronger picture, and it is just, I, I don't know how they caught it right at the right moment, but they're doing one of those NHL you know, legends and celebrity games. And he takes Bieber to the boards. And you see Bieber's face kind of getting smashed. And there's Chris Prager with a huge (laughs) smile, like Devious the Joker, you know. (laughs) You know, one of those things. It's awesome. I love it. Classic. I love it. And uh, we have Memorial Day weekend, so we aren't here on Monday, but I know that uh, Dan, you and I, and Michelle and Colin and Freeze Pops, we all feel this way. We're so thankful for those that have dedicated their lives to our freedom and our well-being, and some people think that that's been taken away during the pandemic, but the reason that we're able to do what we do, especially sitting here and talking about sports, is because people literally sacrifice their lives to protect our freedom to be able to do these sorts of things. I think about... um the first home I bought, the the gentleman next to me had uh, two girls that he was raising, married and two girls, and he was a Vietnam vet. And he was on truly the front lines of being a Vietnam vet. And um, I later found out some of the things that he went through. Wow. And, um, and to, to him, I say thank you and to all the men and women of our armed forces. My God, they're, they're just incredible. Hey. If you think you have it bad having to sit in your house and watch a 65-inch big screen, you don't have it bad. No, you don't have it bad. And that's one of the things I miss about uh, the games this year is that we do. I think the Cardinals do a great job of recognizing local heroes and local great stories of people that give back. But they always, always make a point to to honor the military. And I miss that this year. That's something I always take. I Like, for instance, they do the pregame ceremony. I know I always get talking sorry so no you're good the show's like, i want to get the hell out of here no, i got three not, days off not at all um but i i always take the time i really do when we're at home um and it could be various departments of the military that come down or a military member coming up to our booth but no matter what i'm doing in the middle of that i stop and i go watch that ceremony to make sure i take it in to realize i get goosebumps thinking about it, just to realize and i'm not paying i'm not i'm not making this up just to realize what i'm doing this is my dream and these people 
afford me that opportunity, and, and that should never, ever be lost on us. Very well said. Who do you have coming up on Scoops with Danny Mac? I think this is going to be interesting. I've got Brian Anderson. So he's the Milwaukee Brewers announcer, but also he is going to be the host this weekend for the match which is oh, perfect. you know the golf the golf match this weekend and we're well at least I want to get into what he has to go through with testing now he will be actually on site we talked yesterday he's going to be on site and then we'll find out in the show what it meant but I, he's going to be with Charles Barkley, too, in the booth. The guys are going to be mic'd up and wearing IFBs in their ears so they can talk and give each other trash talking and stuff. I, I find it fascinating, and I also think, to the greater picture, is this what we're going to deal with with sports in the future? You know, it, at least for the immediate, you know, are, are guys going to be off-site? How's it going to be? Certain guys are going to be socially distanced on the course, you know, trying to do interviews. So we'll, we'll get into that. Also, I'm going to have uh, Bill DeWitt, the the third, the Cardinals president, talking a little bit about the Cardinals Hall of Fame, and that announcement will be made later tonight. All right. Looking forward to it, Daniel. Thank Th- you. Thanks, guys. Have a great weekend. That is Dan McLaughlin. Scoops with Danny Mac coming up. Thanks to our producer today, Tommy Freeze. Pops, always doing a great job. Thank you. Enjoy your weekend. Thanks, guys. See you on Tuesday. You bet, Colin Surrey, our board operator, doing a fabulous job as always. Not just a board operator, but kind of the, the MC of this show. Uh, Michelle, as always, do a great job. Thank Randy, you. Colin is my co-host. I know. He's okay. <laughs> fantastic. He, he, he runs the board, but he chimes in, and everything he says makes sense. So he's my co-host. He's a, a multitasker. <laughs> he's a valuable multitasker. You bet he is. Uh, Michelle, you enjoy your weekend and enjoy getting your hair done. Send me a picture. Thank you. I will. You're going to feel like a new person. Oh, I'm go- we're going full blonde, Danny Mac. Are you really? I've always wanted to do it. I've been too afraid to do it. And if I've learned anything over the past couple months, it's YOLO. Go for it. I got my hair cut the other day and I said, my God, I feel like a new person. <laughs> it's a haircut. It was unbelievable. It's fantastic. And we appreciate you tuning in, texting in, and being a part of the show. Have a great holiday weekend. And for all of us until Tuesday at 7 Have a good weekend, St. Louis. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.